With that, we're going to get into our part three of our Advent series. Uh, one thing that's really been cool about going through this, it's always nice to kind of take little breaks from where we're at, but if you're first time this week or you're kind of joining us, the word Advent basically means it's the arrival of like a notable person, uh, an event, or a, a thing, right? Something that's a big deal that you're waiting on. And of course, it makes sense that we're, we're, Advent is related to Jesus because he's the most notable person, and he is the one that is, um, made the biggest event, I guess, ever, right, by showing up on the scene. And so what we've been doing over the last, this is our third week, is the name of our series is called Given, because it's the idea that we're, we're framing what we're looking at around the gifts that the Magi gave uh, baby Jesus, essentially. He wasn't a baby at the time, he's probably around two years old, but around that, and how Jesus is a better gift and how he fulfills those gifts and how those gifts signify and and symbolize different aspects of who he is and what he came to accomplish. And so um, when I say magi, um, the idea is that it's it's most likely from a Persia. Um, It was also Babylonian. It was a wise person or a priest, and and it's where we get our word magic. And what these uh, men did, most likely all men, but what they did is they, they studied the stars, they studied science, and they came to a conclusion that a savior of the world was coming. Like, it was a king of Judea, it was a king of Israel that was being born, but it was so big, it was so significant that they had to travel, who knows, hundreds, thousands of miles to come and worship this baby, this, this born being. It wasn't just some random king. Like, it was significant. And so they come and they come around, probably around, Jesus is almost two probably at this time. And they come and they give him gifts. If you're our first week, we looked at how they gave gold, was frankincense and myrrh. Gold signifying Jesus as the king. Frankincense had so much to do with the temple. We looked at that last week in the priest, and it was a smell that was very familiar. And so the frankincense would be the idea of Jesus being the better priest, this better intercessor between, between um, God and human beings. And then this week, we're looking at myrrh. And uh, we're going to kind of take a different route to get there, well, similar to last week. But myrrh, just to kind of give you the, the spoiler alert, was always often, not always, often associated with death. It was one of the primary ingredients in embalming um, people. And although it was used in other ways, it, was, it had some medicinal aspects to it, um, it was often associated with death. That smell was almost synonymous with somebody dying, uh, like a funeral or something along those lines. And so these are the three gifts. And so we're going to get into looking at why myrrh points to something, obviously, with Jesus. But with that, the last few weeks, I started it the same way, and I'm going to start it again this way. And then we started by looking at the story of God. If you were our first week, I started at Genesis, essentially, and I kind of went all the way through to the where Jesus was born, and I emphasized different things, and last week I did the same thing. And the reason why I'm going to do it again this week is it's important to understand that the Bible is a larger story, that it is God's story of redeeming the world. It's not just these little to be 
taken apart all these different aspects and tried to figure out all the things I need to do better. It is ultimately a story about something that God has done. And, all, and we look at our story, we try and fit it into his story. And this story is rich. There's so many different aspects of this story that we could spend all day on. And so today, I'm going to start it the same way that I did last two weeks, and that is, in the beginning, God made the world, and he made everything in it. And it was good, and it was perfect, and it was right. And God made human beings, and he made human beings in his image. And the idea of image was to communicate something about God to the world. It was to represent God in the world. It was to care for the world and steward it. And part of that was this idea of being in relationship with human beings, that God entered into relationship with human beings. As he has existed in relationship for all eternity, he invited human beings into this relationship. And he said, image me, and this is, this is what it's going to look like. And we find our story quickly turn, and they rebel against God. God declared, this tree is good, and this tree is evil, that everything you can eat of the, of the garden is good. Do not do this. This is evil. He declared good and evil, and human beings said no. Adam and Eve said no. I want to I, don't, I think this is actually good. What you declared evil, I actually declared good. And, and I'm going to do this anyway. And they rebelled. And the whole world was cursed and everyone was broken. And then sin comes in and death and disease and pain and suffering and all of the things that we've all experienced at any given time and may be experiencing right now. But God was not done with humanity. He was not done with his creation. He pursued another person another man, his name was Abram at the time, and he came to this man and he said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you with a, a family, a son that's going to become a family, that's going to become a nation. This nation is going to be a blessing to the whole world. Abraham was in his 80s at this time, and he did not have any kids, and it says he believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And in that moment, we see the beginning of, of how the relationship with God was going to be. It was be a relation of trusting what he promises. It was by faith, and it says that in that moment, God counted to him righteousness. He was right with God by trusting his promises. And it came true. He did give birth to a son named Isaac. And at this moment, I'm going to pause our story just briefly. Genesis chapter 22. We're still in this story, but we're going to just emphasize something specific. It's in, Exodus, in, a, in Genesis chapter 22. It says, God, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, and whom you love, and go up onto the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of these mountains, which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood and the burnt offering and rose, for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took his hand in the fire. And so they went to his, with his father, Abraham. So Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said to him, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering, and Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they both went together. Weird story. Just acknowledge that right there. It's a weird story, okay? Here's the thing. 
God comes to Abraham and, and asks him to sacrifice the very thing that he loves more than anything in the world, his son. And we want to specify, God had no intention, I believe, of doing this. The purpose was to point to a, a, a later time. But irregardless, Abraham obeyed. And he took his son, and we could see the faith that Abraham had said. He said to his servants, listen, we're going to leave and come back to you, okay? And God's going to provide for himself the lamb. And he was very calm. tells us later on in scripture that he was, even if it had gone down that way, he was planning, like he believed that God would raise him up. That's beside the point. The point is, this foreshadowing is so important. The idea was God saying, do you trust what I promised you even now? Now that you have the son, you still promise that I'm going to make you a nation, a great people, and that you are going to be a blessing to the whole world. Do you still trust this? And Abraham obeyed. He journeyed. He came to this spot. And what I find so amazing is that he says to Isaac, Isaac goes, listen, I have the wood on my back. We see the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham goes, God will provide for himself a lamb. They go up. You may know the story. Abraham's about to strike Isaac. God stops him and says, now I know that you, you love me. I know that you trust me. I know all of these things. And he stops him. And it says that Abraham looked up his eyes and he saw there was a ram caught in the thicket. And he took the ram and he sacrificed it. And they came down. And the story goes on. Which leads to the question, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb that Abraham was talking about? Let's fast forward in our story. Israel grows. They do become the nation promised. They grow and incubate in Egypt for 430 years and eventually become enslaved to the Egyptians to the point where they were oppressed. They were, their children were being called to like be laid out in the sun and die. They were supposed to kill their sons and throw their sons in, in the Nile River. They were oppressed. They were crying out to God for help. And God sends a savior. He sends Moses to them. And Moses comes. He grows up in Pharaoh's house gets exiled, comes back, and he leads them out, and he frees them. But it wasn't before there's plagues, ten plagues. The ninth plague was darkness, which I find interesting. We see the plagues as almost decreation. The world was coming undone. Chaos was ensuing. Darkness was coming in again. It was almost as though it's the life without God working, right? And in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of the darkness, God's bringing freedom. And the 10th plague was something interesting. It was another situation of death. And it was in this plague that God instituted the Passover. This is what the plague was going to be. This is in Exodus chapter 12. God said, I'm going to strike down the firstborn. Now, the previous plagues in our story, they, most of all of them were against the Egyptians and the Egyptians alone. Okay? It wasn't against Israel. But this one, he goes, I'm going to strike down the firstborn. But I'm going to make a way out for everyone. And this is the way out. We have in Exodus chapter 12, he says, take a lamb. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the month that should be the beginning of all months for you. In verse 1, it should be the first month. Tell the congregation of Israel, on the tenth day of the month, everyone shall take a lamb according to the father's house, a lamb, a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, then the nearest neighborhood um, take according to the number of persons, according to that which you you can eat, and you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And on the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill the lambs at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And then they shall eat the, the lamb and all of this. And it basically goes on to say that when the angel of death comes and sees the blood on the doorpost, everyone in the house will be saved. Another really strange story. But here's the, the lamb popping up in the story again, and we need to address it. The Passover was instituted. This plague would affect everyone. They're to take this lamb into their home and make, make it like their pet for 10 days, which is kind of strange. And on the 14th day, they're to kill it, take the blood, and put it over the doorposts. It says the blood shall be assigned to you and everyone that's in the house. And as this, this death comes, it sees the blood Everyone in the house would be saved, which I find really interesting because it didn't matter who was in the house. It could have been a criminal, it could have been a priest, it could have been an Egyptian, it could have been an Israel, it could have been young or old, it could have been anybody. But when the blood was seen, the angel of death would pass over. So Israel has this opportunity again to trust God, to trust his definition of good and evil, to trust his way of salvation and they did it. They fulfilled the promise. And death comes. And some of this firstborn die because they didn't obey. And some were saved. Egyptian and non-Egyptian. They get out of Egypt. Our story, our story continues. They become this people like we talked about last week. They're given the law so they can model God again and, and image him. And that the whole world could be blessed. They could be a blessing. And quickly they fail yet again. And again, they end up in captivity. And for 400 years, from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, they're in captivity. And they get to return to their land. And it's in this setting that Jesus comes with Roman oppression. They're sitting in this space. And while they've been in captivity, they've been waiting for this Savior, this Messiah that was promised. They're waiting for the king like David, the the prophet like Moses, they've come to imagine with great expectation what this Messiah would be like. They had determined how it was going to come about, how he was to come and save, and then Jesus was born. And he was born in a very different way, which leads us to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus was just born, and it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So we have shepherds. Shepherds taking care of lambs, right? They're in the fields of Bethlehem. One thing that's cool, and I forgot to mention this last week, is Bethlehem means house of bread, right? We talked about the showbread in the temple, but it's beside the point. Bethlehem was about five miles from Jerusalem. And Bethlehem had become the location where the shepherds, the sheep that the shepherds were taking care of, were the sacrifices for the temple. 
the, most of the, sh- the shepherds and the sheep in Bethlehem area were being uh, raised, and, and out of those sheep, they were taking the animals that would be sacrificed in the Jewish temple. And so they had to be protected, and they had to be separate. And what was interesting <clears throat> is that Bethlehem had a tower in it. It was called, uh, let me get it right here, Migdal Adar. It was called the Tower of the Flock. And it was right kind of on the road. It was outside the city a little bit. And this tower was most likely built over a cave or something else. And it was this tower. It was called the Temple of the, uh, the, the Tower of the Flock for this reason. That when a, a, a ewe was like getting ready to give birth, and it's like this lamb's getting ready to come to the world, the shepherds would take the sheep into this space and help give birth so that none of the bones were broken. It wasn't, it wasn't blemished when it was born out, born out onto the ground. And they would take this lamb and they would wrap it in swaddling clothes and they'd put it in the manger in this, in this, like, this tower, which was also kind of a stable below it. And once the lamb kind of calmed down and, and rested and was able to be kind of on its own, it would give it back to its mother, right? It was freaking out. And they would do this. This was a regular practice and those Pure, spotless lambs would be protected kind of in the tower of Egdar, right? There's this, this space with a stable. And what was interesting is in Micah chapter 4, 8, God was speaking, and this was right before, while they were in captivity. He said this to me. He says, And you, Migdal Adar, hill of the daughters of Zion, to you shall it come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So because of this verse, a lot of, Jewish people expected the Messiah somehow, not just to come from Bethlehem, but to be connected to this tower. Like there was some sort of like he was going to come to it. They didn't know, right? They had all these expectations. What was really cool is that among these expectations of the, of the king like David and a prophet like Moses and an intercessor, somehow in addition to all of that, you were going to have this lamb come, this Messiah come. And so what's interesting is when the, sheep, when, when the shepherds were proclaimed, when the angels said, to you in the city of David is born, you're going to find this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, they knew exactly where this was. Bethlehem was not a small city. It wasn't like they were going from house to house going, where's the, did you guys have a baby? Are you the, where, which one is it? Which house? They knew. They went to the location because that was the sign they were waiting on. They were like, here's the connection. We see lamb popping up in the story again. They didn't have to search. They knew right where to go. So what does this have to do with Magi's gift of myrrh? Like I said, myrrh is associated with death and embalming. See, Israel had been looking for a savior, the, the Messiah, to free them from oppression. They were looking for the king like David. They were looking for the intercessor like Moses, but they weren't looking for the lamb. They weren't looking for the lamb, although it's rich in the story. The lamb is throughout the story, and they weren't looking for the lamb. No one was looking for the lamb. In fact, when Jesus would talk to his disciples and say, hey, he he told them three times, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then they're going to capture me. I'm going to get crucified. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again after three days. And they were like, I don't know what that means. They didn't. They had no idea. Like, they were like, what? No, that's that's not going to happen. Like, they, they didn't understand. We see the lamb showing up throughout the story of God. 
so we too must ask, what about the Lamb? And what's really cool is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer in John chapter 1, 29, gives the biggest spoiler alert as he sees Jesus coming to him one day. He proclaims to the crowd that had gathered, he, which was filled with Pharisees, which was filled with religious leaders, which was filled with all types of people. He says, behold, the Lamb who comes to take away the sin of the world. He proclaims Jesus to be the Lamb. And Jesus is the Lamb. Even in the book of Revelation, we see him he's still shown as a Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb. Here's what's cool. Is Jesus, like Isaac, is the beloved son. But he was not spared by his father. He was sacrificed. He was sacrificed for us all. What's crazy is Jesus was sacrificed because of his obedience. He was obedient to the point of death. Jesus is the better son. Tim Keller says this, and I love it. He says, and when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the better Passover lamb who was killed by the very family he came to save but just not for the house of Israel, for the whole world. To create a new family, a a new family not by blood, but by adoption. God is in the business of adopting us, adopting people into his family. We don't have to be born into it. It's available to everyone. And not only that, Jesus' blood still covers those in the house, freeing us from the penalty of sin. He's inviting us into the house. He's inviting you into the house if you haven't entered in. Rather than getting what we deserve, the lamb was slain instead of us. He's the better temple lamb destined for sacrifice, not just for individuals, but for the whole world. His blood still covers us. I think it's a beautiful picture to see that that God's intention from the beginning, knowing humans are the way they are, was to provide a way for us to have relationship with him, to take care of the the sin that we have created on our own, the death that we've brought forth by becoming, it says in in the Bible, that him who knew no sin, who knew, who was perfect, Jesus, became sin, was covered with sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the idea of being a follower of Jesus is no longer about what I must do to achieve, what must I do to please God, to make God happy with me, to be good enough for God to love me. It is that God has loved you and me. And that he did everything necessary for us to be in relationship with himself. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And as we see today, he paid the penalty that is the penalty of all sin and death that we deserve and he, by sacrificing his only son for us. And so we can see that God loves us be, so much because he sent Jesus, as it tells us in John 3.16. And so today, as we close out our time, let's look at that. You guys can 
roll back up for worship. We're going to close out with a couple songs. I want you to, it's a little bit shorter, but I want us to spend a little bit of time just reflecting that the Lamb of God, the myrrh, he, like when the women were going to the tomb on that Easter day, like they were probably bringing myrrh with them, right? That, that the, whatever the reason was, the Magi knew, they may have not known what, why they were bringing what they were bringing, but this idea that the king would come, that an intercessor would, be, would come, and that a sacrifice would come, that the lamb would come to save and to cleanse us. And so with all of that, we're welcome in the home. God invites us into the home. He invites us into the house. And it's in the house that his blood is over us, that when God looks at us, he sees his son's obedience and he sees his son's sacrifice for us. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We thank you that you did everything necessary for us and we ask and we pray that you would um, help us understand in a deeper way. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.